encountering the texture of the text of God's Word, text and context. I'm sure you can guess what book of the Bible we're in today. Mark. <laughs> Mark my words. We will be in it for a good while. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 6, and we're going to go ahead and plow on into chapter 7. Talk about the traditions of the elders. Fun. fun. Another wonderful passage. So we're in the section about walking on water. We were talking last week about the, especially these three phrases Jesus says as he approaches them on the water. The disciples are in the boat. Jesus was up on a hill praying. He comes down on the water, and the disciples freak out, scream like girls, and say, Ah, oh, it's a ghost! And then uh, he says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And so we talked about it is I, that is in Greek, ego eimi, which is I am. Which is, it's such a tragedy that we would translate it as it is me. Because Jesus is not saying, hey y'all, it's me. He's saying I am. I mean, he can be saying it's me, but he's also saying I am. It's like a double, it's a play on words, right? And I think the I am is the most important part. Because he's clearly drawing on Exodus, the way the story is being told here. Um, and then do not be afraid. I mean, a command that is the most common in scripture. And take heart, um, of course, a, a comforting word. So I'm going to read in verse 51, these next two verses, um, 51 and 52. Then he got into the boat with them, Jesus, into the boat, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So the climactic ending to the walking on water story ends not with them going, wow, Jesus just walked on water. We thought he was a ghost, but he's not. And he, then he said, I am. And he said, take heart. Do not be afraid. Whoa. But instead they go, yeah, that's cool. But this bread, though, and they open their little to-go containers, and they're focused <laughs> on the bread from the feeding of the 5,000 in the story right before this one. Um, what do you think is going on there? Why on earth would they focus on the bread? They're hungry. <laughs> They're hungry. Of course they are. Yeah, they did. Um, the feeding of the 5,000, I think it's the 5,000. Oh, yeah. I think the feeding of the 5,000 is the story that appears in all four Gospels. Anybody verify that? I think it's the one miracle that shows up in all four. So, of course, Matt, of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke share, like, a lot of the same stories. And John hardly has any of the same stories. But I think this is one that is in all four. The feed, it, it's one of the feeding. I think it's this one, the 5,000. So, huh? A lot more people witnessed it. Yeah. And, and it, I, yes, but also wouldn't you imagine that even if fewer people witnessed it, the ones of, like, raising from the dead would be the one that would show up in all four, right? Like, why the, why the food and the fish? And the fish is important, too. They don't focus on it as much here. But, of course, like, you know, you have the tradition of the Jesus fish. You know, you see that on the back of people's Well, that's actually really ancient practice to draw, like, a little caricature of a fish. Because the first few letters of fish in Greek are similar to the first two letters for Christ. Is that right? Something like that? You, you remember this? Remember. I, something like that. Something like it that. Seems like, isn't it like Ictus and Hirstos? So yeah. They're actually that close. Some way, somehow, the fish and the, the letters and the uh, Mark oh, 6 yeah, the near he, the end. The thing is that the fish looks like a he. Um, oh, okay. So it looks like a Greek letter. Yeah, it looks like the letter for CH, which looks like an X. 
So it looks like, like Christos. Like finish the fish so that the, the I see. So, okay, so then it's that the fish looks like the Greek letters that start the word Christ in Greek. Either way, it was a popular symbol, and you could, you know, people would recognize it, and we still have it today. Dad, were you going to say something? Marshall? Oh, I thought you raised your hand. Um, so uh, either way, the, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 just really stuck in the early Christians' minds. Uh, for some reason, that was just such a, a central story for them. And I wonder if, uh, I wonder if it's partly because, I mean, just like we've already kind of pointed out last week and this week, or the past two weeks, the, the resonances between this story and all the stuff in Exodus. I mean, it's just so grounded and rooted in Israel's history, and like every other line seems to be pointing back to Exodus. Yeah. Yes, it's one of only two. That appears in all four. Yeah. Okay, what's the other one? Resurrection. Oh, yeah. Okay, duh. <laughs> I knew that, yeah. Just make sure you knew that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so apart from like the resurrection, which all the Gospels get very similar near the end of the story, but as far as like the only public miracle, this is the only one that all four have. Yeah, that's huge because John is so doing his own thing when it comes to the four Gospels. It's interesting. I don't know. For some reason, the bread and the fish, it really caught their imagination, apparently even more so than walking on water, than raising the dead. And I'm not, like, downplaying those other miracles, of course, right? I'm just saying I think it says something that this isn't all for, um, that the Spirit led Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to have it in all four. They could have been on a sandbar. They could have been on a sandbar. <laughs> um yeah, the green grass, all these little details, Exodus illusions. Uh, and then their hearts are hardened. Who's that sound like? I've already said this, but sounds like Pharaoh. Yeah, their hearts are hardened. So they're not on the right side of this story. Uh, their hearts are hardened like Pharaoh. Their hearts should be soft and open. Um, and in fact, it's interesting there because clearly Jesus would be the Moses type figure. So their hearts are hardened. They're not receiving the signs. Pharaoh's heart is hardened because he doesn't receive the signs of the ten plagues, the ten miracles of Moses. So. It's all right. If you, yeah, I've, I've heard if you just like really throw it on the floor. Um, either way, for some reason, this really stuck in their minds. I also want to draw our attention back to Isaiah chapter 6, a passage that just keeps coming back to mind in the Gospel of Mark. And it's that passage that we, we tend to remember because it's where Isaiah gets called and he sees the throne room of God and he sees the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy. And then the whole thing about here I am, send me. And then we forget the second half of that chapter, which is God's response after Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then God says, go, say to this people, keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull, stop their ears, shut their eyes so that they won't look with their eyes or listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. The word of the Lord. What a ministry commission. <laughs> Here I am, Lord, send me. Nobody's going to listen, and in fact, your job is to go make them listen less. Awesome. The fields are ripe with harvest. <laughs> but again, like we've talked about, it's just that, it, I don't think it's that he's actually making their hearts hard. Of course, he's God. I suppose he could. But it is that by simply putting it out there, he's revealing what already is. And by revealing what already is, now we know what, now I know my heart is hard, so now I have the opportunity to change it. 
right? If I hide it and keep it all in the dark, there's no opportunity for change. But if it's out there and I know it and they know it and everybody knows it, now suddenly it's out in the open. We all know it. Now there's the possibility for change and repentance. So, um, There's a little section here at the very end of chapter 6 that's like a summary statement. Um, verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once immediately recognized him and rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats uh, to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed, literally saved. Um, I think, I don't know if I've talked about this before. The word for saved is the same word for healed, really. So whenever he heals them, he saves them. So that explains a lot of like whenever Jesus heals somebody, he says, well, nobody sinned that this person is sick. But so you know that I have authority to forgive sins. Hey, your sins are forgiven. It's a clever play because by healing him, he's saving him. And Jesus is like, yeah, two sides of the same coin for me kind of thing. It's really clever. So uh, did you notice that there in this section, there's a lot of little allusions to some healings that he's already performed. Did you catch that? So like the mats, you remember the, the one man was brought on a mat by his friends and it says specifically they're bringing the sick on mats. Um, or who, to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he went into villages or cities or farms, they laid their sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch him. We've already had several people begging. Um, we had some people begging him to leave their region after he cast out the garrison demoniac because that freaked them out. But we've also had people begging, can I follow you? We've had people begging, would you please heal me? Would you heal my daughter? All of that. And then you have the thing about touch even the fringe of his cloak. Who does that remind you of? Yeah, the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years. She touches just the fringe of his cloak, probably the little tassel on his garment, one of the other Gospels says. Um, so it's interesting. It's, it's saying, yeah, what you've already seen, that was just a for instance. It's almost as if Mark has given us this summary statement and saying, yeah, you know all the healings Jesus has already done? Aren't those great? Yeah, that's only the tip of the iceberg. That's just like the, oh, here's an example. I have a handful of them I could toss to you. People on mats, yeah, here's one. People who touched the t uh, fringe of his garment, here's one. People who begged him, here's one. So it's kind of like he's letting us in like, oh, yeah, the, by the way, this isn't, a, this isn't an isolated circumstance. This is very much just another day in the life of our Lord kind of thing, um, which I find interesting. Well, I found it interesting that Mark didn't write in here somewhere in this part in the, yeah. about all those people that were healing that maybe it's implied right <laughs> yeah. so that's that's interesting so to connect it to the immediate context right. we just heard that the disciples hearts are hardened yeah. but then we hear about all these people who are like this guy we just bring our sick to him and they're healed right. so maybe we're supposed to ask the question as we read oh the disciples aren't getting it but maybe some of the people are starting to get it yeah. maybe their hearts are softening yeah absolutely absolutely Yeah, yeah. the disciples are like part of the central focus of the walking on water story. And then all of a sudden they just drop out and it's just like, oh yeah, and Jesus healed a bunch of people and it was going really well and everything was kind of, you know, exploding his ministry and everything. And they're like, not going to tell us any more about the disciples? What gives? But maybe, it's, but maybe it's clever. 
maybe it's like, uh, you know, in a movie, whenever it's like you, you're focusing on one character, focusing on one character, and all of a sudden it just cuts to a completely different scene. And then you're like, well, what? Oh, and then you see the connections that this relates to what you just saw somehow. Maybe it's like that. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a scene cut, a scene change, maybe. Speaking of movies and how you can compare movie direction to scripture, because I am a film and movie and TV junkie. But um, my dad and I were talking the other day. He asked me about, so he said, like, when is the spirit revealed in scripture? When is the spirit revealed as the spirit? Which is a great question. And I said, well, do you mean explicitly or implicitly? Do you mean like, hey, guys, I'm the spirit? Or do you mean like, there's the spirit? Because I said, like, whenever you read Genesis and you read, well, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Well, you could say that the spirit of God hovering over the waters, that word spirit could be breath. The breath, like he breathes over the water. But I said, it's kind of like whenever in a movie we're let in on stuff that the people in the movie don't know yet, but we know what's going on. And they're operating with these things affecting them, but they don't know what it is yet. But we know because the narrator has let us in on it. It's like that. A lot of times in scripture, we're led in on something that, so like with the Spirit's operation, I feel like it's, yeah, like we're led in on the Spirit's operation ahead of time. Because we can't ever now read the Old Testament without having read the New Testament also. So the New Testament is always like this lens for us through which we read our First Testament. Um, so we're led in on the story. So it's, it's kind of fun. Um, did they know of the Spirit the way we know of the Spirit? Hints and bits and pieces, but fully as we know the Spirit, not really. But does that mean the Spirit wasn't alive and operating much the same way he does today? No, he was. We're just let in on part of the story, right? We got some of the background that the the actors in the story didn't get. Anyway, um, let's go to chapter 7. I want to get into chapter 7 today. Trying to make a little progress here. Not too much, though. starting your Leviticus chapter 2, man. What do you say? What contaminates life when we're doing Leviticus? Yes, I, that's right. So uh, I'm preaching from Leviticus, and then now we're talking about the traditions of the elders, and this ties so much into Leviticus, part of the reason I wanted to get into chapter 7. <laughs> so let's read chapter 7. Um, actually, Micah, will you read uh, the story about the tradition of the elders through yeah. verse 23? The Pharisees and some legal experts from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They saw some of his disciples eating food with unclean hands. They were eating without first ritually purifying their hands through washing. The Pharisees and all the Jews were eating without fully washing their hands carefully. This is a way of observing the rules handed down by the elders. Upon returning from the marketplace, they don't eat without first immersing themselves. They observe many other rules that have been handed down, such as the washing of cups, jugs, pans, and sleeping so the Pharisees and legal experts asked Jesus, Why are your disciples not living according to the rules handed down by the elders, but instead eat food with virtually unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah really knew what he was talking about when he prophesied about you hypocrites. He wrote, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship, their worship of me is empty, since they teach instructions that are human words. You ignore God's commandments while holding on to rules created by humans, and handed it down to you. Jesus continued. Clearly you are experts at rejecting God's commandments in order to establish these rules. Moses said, honor your father and mother. And the person who speaks against father or mother will certainly be put to death. But if you say, if you, but you say, if you tell your father or mother everything I'm expected to contribute to you is korban, 
that is, a gift I'm giving to God, then you are no longer required to care for your mother or father. In this way, you do away with God's word in favor of the rules handed down to you, which you pass on to others. And you do a lot of other things just like this. Then Jesus called the crowd... No, let's, let's pause there. Yeah, that's a good idea. Because we may not even make it all the way through that today. Um, yes. So the tradition. So this is the section where Jesus and the authorities are clashing yet again about, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're supposed to do it. And Jesus says, well, technically, no, that's actually the stuff you've made up and added. Or that's the stuff that you've enforced, even though it's not technically required. Where you have these little... Um, you have these little ways of kind of finagling, like the stuff about Korban. We'll get into that in a moment. The stuff about, well, technically it's an offering to God, so I don't have to honor my parents. It's fine. Like that kind of thing. It's, it's this, well, uh, it's this legalistic kind of, uh, well, I technically made an agreement with God that I was going to give that to him, so therefore I can't give it to my parents. Sorry. Um, that kind of phenomenon. Um, some, some observations and notes, and we'll see what, what you make of this and what you think. Uh, the Pharisees, some of the scribes who'd come down from Jerusalem gather around him, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating. I think I've talked about this before. Eating, it's literally eating the bread. Because in Greek, bread or eating bread is just an idiom for eating. Um, it's like whenever, similar to like how we say, oh, we're going to break bread this afternoon. Like my parents are coming home with us. We're going to go break bread. I don't think there's any bread involved, actually. <laughs> Like, we're not having a, a loaf of bread, and that's all we're eating. It's, it's like a euphemism for we're just eating, right? And it's just, it comes from Greek. And so every time in this section you see eating, and it comes up two times, it's eating the bread. But what I find interesting, I just can't let it alone, is that it doesn't say eating some bread. It says eating the bread, which is interesting. What bread are they eating? They're eating the bread in their to-go baskets that they got from the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, there's 12 baskets left over, one for each of them. They had to-go baskets. They're eating their leftovers. So it's almost, Rosemary, it's almost like, it's almost like um, that little section is interrupting to say, oh yeah, and Jesus' ministry was going great. Anyway, now they're back on the shore and now they're about to eat their bread. So they had just said, um, they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Jesus does all these amazing things. They go, wow, the bread. And then they're like, I got to get my hands on it. I'm hungry. And then they start eating it right then and there. The Pharisees pop out and they're like, wait a second. And they notice some of his disciples are eating with defiled hands, unclean hands. That is without washing them. And then there's this explanation in verse three and four. For the Pharisees and all the Jews really do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. Okay, lots of fun there. First off, this isn't like um, mom and dad saying scrub-a-dub-dub, you know, and then checking, did you wash your hands before dinner? Yes. Then why aren't your hands wet? Yeah. What'd you say? You get in trouble for not washing your hands before you eat? I can believe that, Steve. Uh, Yeah, Alan, what were you going to say? In their chow lines? Yeah, I'm chow lines. Chow lines. The reality is, we're so accustomed to having everything at 
Yeah. Back then. Yeah. They didn't. Yeah. Like You're right. Interesting, isn't it? Is uh, very real. That's probably why the disciples, you know, hmm. were concentrated on. Sure. On the, In a world where you're starving, how does the food not take your attention away? That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. That's a great so point. We're just we're spoiled rotten here. That's we so much that's excellent. I mean, I feel persecuted when I can't get the creamer I want at Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's right. <laughs> it happens right here, too, because when we had not, the big, not a big flood, but a small flood, and a lot of people stayed in our building here. Mm-hmm. There was a young man who ate, uh, people cooked hamburgers, and he ate half of his hamburger and put it in the fridge. And uh, he wanted to go home. He wanted to go out to where his home was. Just insisted, and it was too, it was too wet. Mm-hmm. And he finally told um, Philip uh, Patterson, he said, "I saved that food because I'm used to only getting like a hamburger a day." And yeah. he said, "I want to go home because I have a safe in my room and I lock it. And any food that I get that's a little bit left over, I put it in there so wow. other people won't get it." That I wow. Do you remember whenever we um, fostered um, a kid from the children's home? Yes. Do you remember how he'd eat himself sick yes. at some meals, and then he was so sick from the previous meal he couldn't eat at the next one sometimes? Because yeah, yeah. And I, I've had uh, one of my bosses in college, Devin. He he also fostered and adopted, and they mostly did babies, but they had a junior high teenage kid and they would just like stuff food under their mattress it's a different mindset that's a great observation alan yeah i read it and i'm like get over the food come on i need to eat less anyway but um but for them of course it takes their of course it grasps them right absolutely and it's also kind of brilliant of jesus as a teacher to to say well here's something you so desperately need and something that's so tangible right in front of you and as they're eating the bread, he just kind of inserts himself like, yeah, that's me, right? It's kind of brilliant the way he just kind of goes with what's already right, desperately needed in front of them and inserts himself and something spiritual about it. I do want to point out that um, says the, the things about washing, this is ritual washing. I think that's important to, to point out. This is like, okay, so for example, I went to a, I got to go to a mosque in Chicago for a class that I took in college about learning world religions. And we got to go to like different places of worship. And one of the places we went was a mosque. And I had a big speech from my professor before we went in to all the students because he said, look, men, when you go into the mosque and you go to the bathroom, there's a big trough in the middle. That is not a urinal. Do not pee in it. That's not a urinal. It's a ceremonial bathing trough right 
Apparently that had happened before with tourists who came to the mosque. So we had to make sure that our group was not one that did that. But you, you, you would, I watched, we got to go in. He said, I want you to go to the bathroom even if you don't have to go. So you watch them wash before the ceremony. But they would like, if they had a long sleeve, they'd roll it up and they, they wash like from their elbow down. They wash, you know, kind of around their ankles. It's just the ceremonial washing. And they're still kind of dripping a little bit. You know, like I try to kind of wash it off, but it's like time to go to prayer, you know. It's about to start, so then they rush in there, and they're kneeling or whatever, and so it's a little bit of dripping, but, so in other words, it's not really about, like, what we think of as, like, the cleanliness aspect necessarily. It's more symbolic of, like, an inward purity, and, like, I'm trying to wash myself and come to God in a clean state, that kind of stuff, right? Um, I, I think that's important. Maybe you already know this. I didn't really realize this until I started studying more, and I was like, oh, this isn't just, Andrew, wash your hands before dinner. This is... It's this ceremonial thing. So really remember, whenever you go back to Leviticus, a wonderful book of scripture, if you go back to Leviticus and read about the ritual washings, they were connected not with everyday meals and everything you do. They were connected with going into the temple or going into the tabernacle, tabernacle and then eventually the temple, right? So, but it was connected with coming before God in that place. And it's kind of evolved at this point in the tradition so not the scripture itself, but the tradition. It's evolved in this point where it's like, no, you have to wash your hands before every meal, ceremonially. And it, it's evolving into that kind of mentality. Does that make sense? So this is where they're getting into the debate about, well, Moses said we should wash our hands. And Jesus is like, yeah, whenever you go to the tabernacle. But then it's also a little funny because Jesus is kind of a mobile tabernacle. Remember we talked about how Jesus is a tabernacle. He is like the the mobile presence of god mount sinai he's mount sinai mobile um not a cell phone company in the ancient world just that's his he is the tabernacle and in john 1 14 it says he has made his dwelling among us tabernacled amongst us and so that's that's him he's come down off the mountain um and so it's interesting that they're concerned about ritual washing for their meal but really what they should be doing is ritually washing because the tabernacle just waltzed on into their dinner party <laughs> Or I guess they're watching him. So, Point is, they should have washed. They're concerned that the disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. But really, they technically should have washed their hands, not because they were eating, but because they were in the presence of God. They were in the tabernacle. And then also, they just waltz right up, and they haven't washed their hands. Here they are, just waltzing right on up um, in the midst of it. And also, it's kind of funny. There's a play on words here. Um, the stuff about taking it from the market, and there are also other many traditions that they observe the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. Literally, the baptizing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. You remember, baptism is just the word for immersing. But it's. <laughs> read it that way. So I'm going to read it and insert baptize and tell me that's not kind of funny. Um, you, and remember John's baptism that was already calling out the Jews, right? You brood of vipers and saying, well, you need to get baptized, which is, oh, that was so offensive to them. Basically, you need to get ritually cleansed because you're not clean. You know, he's throwing it at them, okay? All that, and then, and they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it, and there are also many other traditions that they observe, the baptizing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. Ah, I imagine when Mark was originally read, somebody snickered there. That's funny. The baptize, they're so concerned about washing. And it's also funny because Jesus, you could say, and John especially, is concerned with the baptizing of people and people's hearts. Not the pots and the pans and the hands. 
They're concerned about the baptizing of the pots and the pans and the hands. He's more concerned about the baptizing of the heart and the whole person. The whole person in symbolism of the heart, right? Um, it's have, funny. Oh yeah. Well, it's, it's it's certainly a part of it. I mean, they probably had a way of the 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 emphasis I put on ritual washing is not to say it's either a ritual wash or they don't wash their hands at all. It's it's a distinction between do they just wash their hands for cleanliness or do they wash their hands and also wash it for ritual. It's not so much that they wash their hands, it's how they wash their hands in a ritual way, right? So it's like, if I was washing my hands right now, I would just wash my hands, right? But like I said, whenever they did the symbolic wash, they come up to their elbow and go all the way down and then just kind of splash the water on there. So it's, it's that they see it for a very specific purpose. It's not as, it should be just pragmatic. They're making it more symbolic than it needs to be. Yeah. Baptism is not the putting flesh off. It's the answer to a good conscience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's more than that. And that's that's what those ritual hand washings and stuff were. Yeah. Their hands were probably clean. Some of them them may have been. Well, if they're a priest with handling with the blood, maybe not. But in general, yeah. Yeah. Beat it off. It'll be fine. Just brush it off on your pants. It'll be fine. It's good. It's good. Um, yeah. Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, they ask him, well, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat, eat the bread with defiled hands? Um, and his response is, uh, well, Isaiah was talking about you, you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrine of men or teaching human precepts as doctrines. Um, you abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Um, and I'm sure you, you've heard this before. I'm sure you already know, like, hypocrites are actors. Um, it's a word for, they would put on these masks and act in the Greek theater. So you're acting. You act like you're all clean and holy because you wash your hands, but big whoop, you've washed the outside, but there's, there's still a lot of dirt on the inside. Um, and then the Isaiah quotation, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Um, I'm reminded of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven. It's not all this big show. Lord, Lord, I know all the right things to say. I can pray a really beautiful prayer. And I can, um, I wash my hands. Did you wash your hands? You didn't wash your hands. You should have washed your hands before you came to church. But, but it's like, yeah, okay. But I'm, re- I'm reminded of, like, these pictures I see on Facebook sometimes of, like, this person that looks really clean cut and, like, a typical churchgoer. That's all kind. And then they're sitting next to someone who looks, like, scraggly, <laughs> a lot of tattoos and kind of um, gross. <laughs> and this person it has a little thought bubble and it says, what are they doing here? And the other one says, Lord, have mercy on me. Just like the parable Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the publican. One goes to the temple and says, well, thank God I'm not like that guy. <laughs> Knock on wood. And the other guy says, just have mercy on me, a sinner. 
uh, prefers one to the other. It's all acting. They're just hamming it up for God. Yeah? Okay. Okay. I would like to think it's only a caricature of a thing that happens, but that's pretty close to the reality of what happens, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I will hear that story. Um, Mm. It's a biblical precedent. Yeah. Well, and I preached about this last Wednesday here at the gathering, um, and I used it from Leviticus too, because of course the command that Jesus says is the second greatest command in the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus. And I was arguing that, you know, Leviticus is about inhabiting a sacred world, and Biblically speaking, the other is always sacred. Whoever the other person is, is always, always, always a sacred person because Jesus said, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Hebrews says, be sure to practice hospitality because sometimes you're entertaining angels and didn't even know it. And then, of course, you have the biblical precedent of Abraham who actually entertained three mysterious visitors who turned out to be Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I think. At the least, we're told it's Yahweh. It was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And all of us were made in the image of God. Yes. Yes, and if we treat anybody poorly as if they're not made in the image of God, then we deny our monotheism. Because what we're saying is, oh, well, the, the one true God didn't make you if I don't treat you as a true child of God. Um, I believe God made all people, and we are all his children. And whether we live according to that or not, we are his children. Um, and the way we love them can call them to that sacred reality. And you remember John says in his epistle, um, if you can't love people who you do see, how are you going to love God who you can't see? Because there's a strong correlation biblically. The other is always, 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 always sacred. Sacred, sacred, sacred. Which is why I would say when every time you approach a person, especially people you don't like, and especially people who you're like, I don't know about this person, take off your shoes. Because you're on holy ground. And if you have stinky feet, be sure to put some baby powder in your shoes ahead of time. Um, in vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrine. We've never been parts of churches that have emphasized little bits and pieces of human interpretation as if it's the very words of God. We've never known believers to do that in any faith tradition. Yeah, it's so easy to do that though, isn't it? So, you know, something that really gets, kind of irks me, and maybe I'm just like overthinking it, which I would never do. But maybe I'm just overthinking it, but something that really aggravates me is whenever I hear people argue, 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 and say, well, it's the word of God. Well, it's the word of God. Whenever people pepper that in like every other sentence, usually it's their interpretation and not necessarily what the word says because um, some things are more clear than others. And it always seems to be those things that aren't as clear that they insist, well, my interpretation of this thing that's not clear, it's the very word of God. And I'm like, that's kind of sacrilegious. <laughs> that's kind of blasphemous. <laughs> I mean, we've debated some of these passages that are not as clear for 2,000 years. And before that, the Jewish scriptures. I mean, have you, uh, you should read some of the Jewish debates. They're fun. They're, so that's what, part of what we're getting into is the Jewish debates about like, well, how, what do we do with, well, he said, he said, keep the Sabbath holy. And then the Jews are like, well, what does that mean? And so they have all these wonderful debates about, well, how many steps can you take on the Sabbath? And can you push an elevator button? And I mean, it's, it's, it's like, 
and, and on the one hand, you can view that as legalistic, and in some extremes it is. And on the other hand, you can view that as, no, like we have to have some of the debate. The problem is, to one extreme, you just say, well, we don't need to think about the specifics at all. Well, that's a little, a little too loose. But then on the other end, it's like, well, 1,000 steps and not a step more. That's a little harsh. Could we say that for me, a thousand steps is a really reasonable thing to do, but for you, it, there might, might not be? And even though my, my personal rule is a thousand steps, like, there's totally going to be exceptions. Like, if my kid needs to go to the hospital, <laughs> screw it. I'm getting in the car and going to the hospital, <laughs> right? So maybe, just maybe, <coughs> the debate itself is part of what it means to interpret those commands. Maybe the debate, and, and this is where I think our Jewish friends do a great job, is they're, they're always enjoying the debate. So it's like they want to get together and argue about Torah. And you're like, but we just want to follow what Scripture says. It's like, yeah, us too. And then they're arguing about how you understand and apply Torah. And they'll argue up well into the night and wake up the baby three times and have to call out for Uber Eats a couple times. And, and then afterwards they'll say, same time next week. And that's just, that's just okay. But I like that. I don't know about you, but like I, I guess my blood pumping. I'm like, yeah, let's argue about Faith and scripture, you uh, you uh, t- eternal conscious torment, or are you more of an annihilationist? Where are you at on that whole debate? You know, mm-hmm. I don't. I never thought about it as being what's worked for you is not worked for me. Because taking care of your sheep that you love really didn't work. Mm. Mm. Taking care of my baby wouldn't be work. It would be love. Yeah. So how do you apply an objective command subjectively? Like we always argue, like these are objective commands of God. And I'm like, I agree. Now what? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. I, we are all on the same page that he said, keep the Sabbath holy. <laughs> Great. What does that mean? <laughs> how do I do that? Um, I think it's a limit uh, on our imaginations, right? And it's also an anxiety in our hearts. An anxiety that says, well, if I can't pin it down to this is exactly how you apply it every single time in every place, then, well, then anything's possible. That's a bit extreme. On the other hand, we don't just say, well, it doesn't matter, whatever. No, like I care enough to try to figure this stuff out. So it's in the, it's in the, it's in the wrestling, I think, itself. I don't know. I always wondered about uh, going out to eat lunch on Sunday. Because you're causing most people to work. Mm. Whether they want to or not. Yeah. Good Jews on Sabbath? prepare their food ahead of time. And then that way, like using the microwave, I think might be okay. Uh, Maybe. It depends, on which kind of Jew. it depends on which kind of Jew. I started to say pushing the microwave might be work. Pushing yeah, the buttons like in, in Israel, might just have to have a order, salad. In order, because in order for buildings to be handicap accessible, the, uh, the elevators will switch to opening on every, every floor on, on Sabbath. Sabbath yeah. You can't press the button. You can't press. It's too much work. A, That's for like fire, the really which is the orthodox. example where the guy gets stoned, which is why they're so ridiculous. Yes, yes, it's it's like the really orthodox ones. Yeah, I mean it's. I think it's good to think about such things, right? Like I had to practice Sabbath for a class I took in college, and he said, "You can't go to the cafeteria when you practice your Sabbath," because we had to practice twenty-four straight hours of actual Sabbath, and he said, "You can't go to the cafeteria because you're making somebody else work." And some kid was like, well, but they're going to be working anyway. And he's like, well, with that mindset, they will be. Right? Like, but so he was like, but no, like you have to make preparations ahead of time. Well, just think of so. all the Christians staying home 
It's true. I heard the argument that, well, then you're depriving them of a paycheck. It's fair. I don't know. It's fair. Yeah. But then we have Saturday night service available at the gathering, so we've included that up. <laughs> we have thought about this contingency. Yeah, Catholics do, certainly. Yeah, Saturday night mass. Well, I like the line in the message. Mm. In this part that says, Jesus is saying, they just use me as a cover for teaching whatever suits their fans. <sighs> Such a way with words. I love Peterson. They're just using me as a cover to say whatever they want. Yep. Absolutely. All right, it's about time. Um, we'll have to cut it there. Let me end this in prayer. We'll get ready for church. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we give you thanks, we give you praise. Oh God, we just pray that you would tender our hearts and make us more and more amenable to you and your ways. May we never use you as a cover to do what we want, but continue to work on us and continue to humble us and soften us for your service. In Jesus' name, amen.